Welcome to the Australian Deer Podcast. I'm Barry Howlett, Executive Officer with the Australian Deer Association. April's a pretty cool time to be a deer hunter in Australia. It's rutting season for our most widespread species, the fallow. It's the open season for our most discreet species, the hog deer. And it's the beginning of the year for our oldest uniquely Australian deer hunting tradition, samba with hounds. In many ways, April is the start of the year for Aussie deer hunters. Today we're going to have a chat with three keen, accomplished deer hunters about their favourite form of deer hunting. Hope you enjoy. Okay, our, um, our first guest today is Danny Eddybowles. Uh, we chatted with Danny back in 2019 about all things hounds and hound hunting. Uh, the hound hunting season in Victoria kicks off in a bit over a week from now. Um and then has a week off for Easter, so we'll probably just play a little bit of music and then um, I'll welcome Danny. Welcome Danny, just over a week, um, the hills will sound like that, your driveway probably sounds like that when you drive in of a night time. Exactly mate, that's what I was just thinking, thanks for having me on Baz. No, that's um. Thanks for coming back. And like I said, we just wanted to talk about um, April's a really good month for hunters. So sort of celebrate the unique things we've got with at least three of our species here in Australia, and one of them certainly probably the oldest um, form of hunting we've got here, continuous form of deer hunting we've got here in Australia is hound hunting. So season opening this year is um, the Thursday before Easter. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a little bit different this year. Certainly a lot better than last year with. Uh with the, with the later start of the season, but um, a little bit different. Um, and it's pretty unique having the one having one day before Easter and then a week off um, and then away you go uh, the following Thursday after Easter. Um, I, I suppose it's just the way the, the calendar is and the way it happens, mate. So, um, yeah, exciting times, especially now that it started raining. Yeah, so I suppose there's times when you know, Easter comes... And disturbs when the season's sort of already hit its straps. There's pretty times when it avoids the season altogether. This year, I suppose it's it's not a bad thing that it's right at the very beginning. Yeah, it's um it's just how it happens, and uh, and something we have to work with. Um, absolutely. When when Easter is later, you know, later in in April, you sort of just get up and running, and then you've got to you've got to have a week off, and then away you go again. So it's uh, for, I think for a lot of hunters this year, they they won't start. Um, until after Easter, um, you know, it's a bit tough for guys to try and get one day off during the week and then, and then uh, just to go for a hunt and give their dogs a run and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah. As you said, the weather outlook sort of seems to have turned in our favour just at the right time. Um, as one well-known hound hunter would be keen on saying, it's looking a bit moist. <laughs> yeah, for sure, mate. Um, certainly, uh, they're copping it at the moment up in New South Wales, mate. So. Uh, we, we're getting the tail end of that. I just had a look at the um, the rainfall chart uh, for our property up in the high country. Um, we've had 15 mils there today, which is nothing compared with uh, the guys in southern Queensland and, New, and, and in New South Wales. Yeah, but still a nice a nice drop of rain. It's good for the hounds, of course, to have some some moist ground and some scent to work off. And and things are looking promising for a for being able to start when the season starts has been years in the last couple of years, particularly where it's been a bit dry for that. Yeah, and and uh, a lot harder for, in particular, the younger hounds to get going early, Baz, when it's dry. Um, so certainly the moisture on the ground 
helps hold the scent for them and uh, makes it a, a touch easier, um, if you like, um, for the hounds to get going and, and get them away and get them a bit fitter and, and up and running for the, for the duration of the season. Be kinder on their feet too. Yeah, it certainly is, especially in the rocky country. Um, in, in saying that, you know, we've, we've had not an overly dry summer, but, um, yeah, and there's plenty of nice green grass around and all that sort of thing, but the ground is still dry. Um, I've been um, up the bush in the last sort of month and getting around it, and it is, is still dry. You know, we, we have just come through summer and um, it is what it is. We haven't had a huge amount of rain, but I think we've had consistent small small falls of rain throughout the, um, throughout the Alps um, that have kept it green. Yeah, and the bush is certainly, um, it's as lush as I've seen it, oh, I think, in the, in the whole time I've been, been going up the bush hunting. Um, that affects the deer to some degree, stops them moving and makes them a little bit harder to find in the mornings? Yeah, they, they're certainly not travelling. They've got no need to travel because they're, they're getting plenty of moisture out of the grass. It's throughout the bush and um, all up through that country that burnt at the start of last year. Um, that's as green as green and there's grass, you know, almost up to your armpits. Uh, I know we were out looking at some deer on the long weekend and, and they're as healthy as healthy, really shiny and, and, and covered in fat by the look of them. Yeah, so the, a bit of that's obviously, you know, these, these change weather conditions and um, the, those series of fires, last year's fires, um, we saw with the Black Saturday fires and the fires before that, sort of that playing through into deer numbers and, and deer condition, if you'd like, um, big stags getting shot four or five years later. Um, that's likely to be repeated sort of coming after last year's fires coming into this season and the next few seasons, would you suspect? Well, you, you can you can anticipate that. There's certainly no guarantees, but um, there's been just in recent times, just you know, from from some of the people that I know that have been out and about stalking, there's some uh, some really nice deer, some really nice stags that have been shot already, um, with with good antler quality and 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 really really healthy deer. Yeah, and we're seeing it. I'm even seeing it in hog deer. You know, deer that we've been watching for a few years that have been ordinary deer that have, have blossomed this year into some some really nice looking deer just because of one year of good conditions so a lifetime of good conditions certainly breeds really healthy deer yeah for sure and uh it, it probably probably reinforces a lot of a lot of the research work as it's, that's been going on forever and a day um that the, the proof's in the pudding you know the better feed better better deer or, or better quality deer yeah yeah which is um from a hunter's perspective that's yeah, the good times are set to continue, I suppose. Um, yeah, for sure. Oh, I, I just looked back twelve months ago, and on our on our block up at Omeo, the deer were getting around. Yeah, they're, they're healthy enough, but you know the hinds that had, that had, had calves and 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 uh, and were feeding them still, they were, they were not in overly good condition. You know, they're still healthy enough, but you could they're getting a bit ribby, so to speak. But but at the moment, the ones we we watched the other day. They're, they're like they've been living on loose and it's just crazy. Yeah, that's oh, really good to see. Um, you spoke earlier about those young dogs getting going, particularly in the season, but even with your more mature dogs, it's it's a long break. I mean, years ago, I'm talking over 10 years ago now, um, you had the ability to give your hounds a bit of a run during the during the summer, during the off-season. Um, now there's very defined season. And that's not likely to change. How long does it take you to get those hounds up and running from, from the year, let's say we get a really good start at the start of April, when will the dogs be really going to the uh, to the point to, to your satisfaction? 
Oh, they always they're always going to have a go and they're always going to hunt. Um, it's a matter of getting the um, the stamina back up and the fitness into their legs so they can do the miles a lot easier than than uh, it's like us. We sit around all summer doing doing not much and drinking too much and eating too much food, mate. And they're they're in the same boat, so it takes us a while too. But oh, I I think I think you know a month to six weeks in, most hounds are are really starting to hit their straps and get that stamina and fitness back and and uh, and, the, and the weather's cooling down. So it all probably comes together sort of, you know, May, June, you know, through that middle of the season, um, they're really starting to go well. And we've, um, this year we've got the change to the game regulations. So I'll just touch on that, you know, the, the season that came in. Ten years ago, the game regulations changed and we did all right out of it as deer hunters, I think, are pretty positive changes back in 2012, certainly from where we come from. Is there anything hound hunters are looking for in particular with the regulations looking set to be remade hopefully later this year? I, I think there's always there's always some enhancements that, that can be made. Um, certainly, as, as you say, we, we certainly made some ground the last time around um, and, and, there, and there's some more ground to be made, uh, always looking for improvements. Uh, one, of, one of the big things that, I, that we pushed for last time, we didn't get up, and, and I think that we really need to have a look at this this time around is is area to hunt. Um, you know, the easy, the, at first, the, the easiest one for the hound uh, guys is, um, is, you know, removing the border, the, the, the freeway borders the human princess freeway borders that had certainly certainly opened up some more space with with pretty much the tick of a pen really um not much has to change there um and uh with the amount of hound hunters and hound crews that are getting about in amongst the general public um you know that them things always need to be considered um the other thing is is looking to looking to grow um the group of hounds that are that are approved to to hunt with uh, the Centralling Hound Group. Um, there's certainly certainly some uh, some breeds there um, that uh, should be considered. There's no two ways about that. And um, there's plenty of guys around the traps that have invested a lot of money into into bringing different breeds of hounds uh, from overseas. Certainly in the last 20 years, there's no two ways about that. It's, it's become a lot easier to import hounds um, and and uh, and get them getting them approved, particular breeds of hounds approved, um, would really enhance the experience for the hunter. Yeah, and it certainly give people that choice. If you look at the gun dog list, um, you know, if you look at the variety of rifles you can get or the variety of vehicles you can get, people like particular things for particular reasons. Um, certainly having more than three breeds of hounds to choose from would, would give hunters a real choice and allow them to, to run their breeding programs and suit the hunting to their own style, I suppose. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and and no two crews hunt the same, or hound teams, I should say, hunt the same, I don't think. Um, a lot of us hunt in different areas and have different ideas on how we want to hunt um, particular areas. Um, so having the right tools to do that that particular job um, is crucial. You know, there's there's quite a few um, hound teams that that um, 
help with management programs for, for private property owners, you know, big, big landholders and, and things like that. Um, you know, and, and that form of hound hunting is totally different to um, guys that go and hunt, you know, the, the high country way, way out back, like in that back big country um, compared with, you know, the back of uh, fringe country um, or, or in, the, in the lower sort of foothills. Um, so you need, like I say, you need to have the, the right tools for the job. Um, it'd be like a, be, be like a, a chippy using a, a hammer nowadays to, to nail a house together, I suppose. Um, technology and, and things has evolved in their trade and certainly the opportunity for, for hound hunters to, to use uh, different breeds of hounds is, is there now. Yeah, and look, that, that topography and that change of habitat certainly affects how the deer behave. So, of course, it's going to affect what the most effective tool. And a, and a part of what we're looking at, particularly with hound hunting now, is its ability to um, play a positive role in reducing deer numbers where we can, certainly removing those highway borders like you spoke of. You know, if we could go south of the Princess Highway, those areas where a decade or so there were very few deer, uh, there's now issues with overabundant deer. It's heavy country. Um, it ideally suited to hound hunting and we can't get in there. Um, so there'd certainly be, yeah, scope to do that. And, of course, we've got modern technology that wasn't around, you know, a decade or, t- or so ago. Um, tracking collars have come an awful long way, just continue to... They evolve about as quickly as the mobile phone does and their functionality and what they can do has just changed unbelievably since they first came in. Oh, for sure, mate. I, I actually had one of one of our guys ask me the other day if we we're going to upgrade our system that we've already got. Feels like we only brought it last year, but um, you know the the GPS technology nowadays is absolutely phenomenal, um, and it's as good, if not better, than like you say, your mobile phone. Um, so that hand in hand with having the right tools, i.e., the or, or or having the choice of tools, i.e. the hounds that you'd like to use, certainly isn't an issue that we had 20 to 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, it's a different world now. You talk, you talk about the boundaries, the borders, the, the highway borders being lifted. We were going fishing fishing over to Welsh Bull only two weeks ago and nearly hit a Samba stag on the road not far out of suburbia. Yeah. So, um, you know, and they, these are in, you know, big, big areas of land that, I don't think gets hunted too much because it's so thick, uh, but it's certainly an opportunity for to open that up and uh, create a bit more space in in the traditional hunting areas. Yeah, so I mean, a, they talk government talk about these triple bottom line effects, but it gives opportunity to hunters and also potentially uh, gives an opportunity to land managers to manage the numbers of those deer, which we know hound hunting's very effective at. Um, there's a, a bit of a study going on with tracking collar data at the moment with Melbourne University on trying to quantify the efficacy of hound hunting. But what we know is that it's, it's a very effective way of winkling deer out, particularly out of pretty heavy country. Oh, for sure. And, and the non-discriminate nature of hound hunting certainly lends it to being one of the best forms of, of deer management or deer control. Uh, I've got no question of it, no doubt about that. Um, you know, we, you just shoot all, all variety of deer. Um, there's, there's no favouritism whatsoever. And look, it's, it's not why we do it, but it's certainly, it's, it's good that that's something that it can do. 
Oh, for sure, for sure. You just um, if the deer, the deer that you start hunting is not necessarily the deer that you end up with, um, and that happens time and time again. Um, but used in the correct manner is very, very effective. Yeah. And again, with can be controlled in a lot of areas now to the point that it wasn't previously because of technology, because we've got tracking collars, because we can keep in front of the hunt and, and round those dogs up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that is, has certainly been the game changer in the last 10 to 15 years when the old radio tracking collars, as good as they were and the purpose they served back then, as soon as um, they graduated to GPS technology, it's just grown and grown and grown. Um, and I noticed, I, I know myself from, from the, the amount of time that we've spent in the bush and, and the various forms of tracking collars that we've used, um, the stuff that 99% of people using nowadays is just phenomenal. And the amount of diesel it saves uh, driving around three or four days later looking for lost hounds is, uh, is phenomenal. So very rare for, for, for hounds to be out, out overnight nowadays. Um, and the majority of the time, um, you know, every, everything's sort of in order and everyone knows, knows where the hounds are at each particular moment of the hunt. And you, probably like a lot of hunters, would um, you could open a museum of tracking collars through the ages, and if you could, <laughs> if, if you could depreciate them on tax, it probably would have been a handy thing. I was I was talking to a friend of ours not long ago who uh, lost some property in the in the fires last year, and we we're having a discussion about tracking collars and uh, and that exact scenario. And he he only lost two boxfuls of parts and tracking collars. Like I'm talking big boxes. And uh, I said, oh, well, that, that's not bad. I've only got one big box, but I keep selling and giving away that many. It's not funny. But, yeah, you just, I don't know, it's one of the things that you're just always looking for the next best thing, I suppose, if you can afford to. Yeah, and it's all good for the shareholders in Garmin, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> I think Garmin have done very, very well over the, uh, the hound hunters in Australia. Yeah, I think we, we touched on it in the last podcast we did together, but just a bit of a reminder, um, there's people out there listening, hopefully, who want to get into hound hunting. Um, if they listen to that beautiful music when I introduced you, hopefully it's really is something you have to experience for yourself. How, how would one go about getting into hound hunting, both from a legal point of view and then how would they go about actually getting in with a hound crew and, and experiencing a hunt? The first thing on the legal side of things, Baz, is they need to complete the, uh, the hound hunter's test. Um, there's quite a few of them happening at the moment, given the, um, the season opening in the next week or so. So GMA's running around doing hound tests here, there and everywhere at the moment. So you certainly need to have that um, certification on your game licence um, and uh, that along with your, your shooter's licence or if you use a bow, um, et cetera. Um, getting, getting into a hound crew or, or, or that sort of thing, generally speaking, it's you know, mates and mates and, you know, I know this guy and I know that guy that go. Um, certainly through the hunting organisations, um, you know, there's always there's always people willing to take uh, newcomers out. Um, you know, it, it's just how it happens. Um, but certainly social media, social media has been a big thing in the last 10 years on that sort of things as well. You know, there's a lot of people just sound people out through social media and, uh, and away they go. But um, certainly it's 
the the legal side of things is is, is mainly your, your hound hunting license or permit um, on on your game license um, is the number one thing to get, and then um, start spending money on bits and pieces that you probably don't need. <laughs> and look, we'll, we'll put a link in this podcast to the GMA page for booking the hound hunting testing, and you know, like you said, people can join. Um, get involved in a crew by you know, joining ADA or VHH or going going to the meetings or um, quite often, certainly in your more hunting areas, you know, Mansfield, where I am in Warrigal, Morwell, Bairnsdale, if you if you went into the local gun shop and asked around, you'd probably find someone reasonably quickly who'd be willing to give you a go. Yeah, yeah, look, and, and, and there's plenty of um, uh, guys that commence their, their, their hunting as stalkers that bumped into a hound crew up the bush one day and all of a sudden they've been invited on a hound hunt and away they go and it's uh, all of a sudden it changes their lives and they're addicted. You've got a, a pair of your cereal pests sort of came into it that way <laughs> a long, long time ago. Yeah, yeah, there's plenty around like that. There's plenty around like that. All right, Danny, is there anything else you want to add or about the season prospects or where we're going with hound hunting in general? No, just um, just a reminder for guys that I think Baz that uh, have got uh, the hounds to uh, make sure uh, that their new registrations are through before they start hunting. Um, that, that's the key. There's plenty of that been happening at the moment with hound assessments. They just need to get a hold of their local or nearest hound assessor, regardless of what organisation or or that you might not be might or might not be in. Um, we just uh, assess the hounds and get them them recommendation forms off so they can be registered. Um, as, as part of what they need to do. That's that's probably one of the biggies at the moment. And uh, and everyone's probably out and about busy charging up their trackers and their radios and cleaning their swags and everything getting ready to go. Yeah, and again, um, if, if you're a hound hunter who's got hounds, you probably know who can assess them. But if you don't, um, get in touch either with us or the GMA and we'll point you in the direction of your nearest and dearest assessor. Absolutely, mate. There's, there's there's plenty of us around nowadays that are, that are qualified to do it in in all areas of Victoria. Um, there, there's always a way to get them done um, sooner rather than later. All right, we'll um, we'll move on with that. But thanks for joining us on the podcast, and hopefully, I'm joining you up the bush in about a week's time to to start a good hound hunting season. That'll be good, Baz. Hope to see you then. Thank yes. you. The Australian Deer Association leads the fight for hunting and wild deer management in Australia. ADA members receive six issues a year of Australian Deer magazine, public liability insurance, firearm insurance, the opportunity to meet fellow hunters and attend branch meetings and events, exclusive hunting and education opportunities, and the knowledge that they are making a tangible contribution to the future of deer hunting in Australia. Go to www.ostdeer.com.au to join the deer people today. Right, our next guest is uh, Laurie Rees. Laurie's an accomplished hunter who really puts in the hard yards on hog deer. For most hunters, the opportunities on hog deer are in April. There are some exceptions, being the public land ballots, private land with approved management programs, and the Para Park Cooperative on Sunday Island. Welcome to the podcast, Laurie. Thanks, Barry. Yeah, well, uh, nice to be here and have a little chat about one of the favourite deer, or my favourite deer I like to hunt. And um, listeners might be aware of you. You certainly star in one of the ADA TV ads, and you've done you've done a little bit of media as the face of ADA over the years. 
Yeah, have done a little bit over the years with uh, with the club and, and uh, enjoy doing a fair bit of volunteer work from time to time when we can all spare an hour or two. And it's enjoyable to get amongst the other blokes and uh, put in a bit. Yeah, that's great. Um, you're, you're an all-round hunter and, and into all things deer, but why hoggies, Laurie? What makes them so special? Uh, Barry, you've, um, you've hit one of the... My favourite spots of deer hunting is the hoggies, and uh, I just find them most challenging out of all species. Um, they're unique, and as you know, we've got um, probably the largest uh, population of hoggies outside their native country, and we're, we're very lucky enough to, um, very, very lucky to hunt them here in, in Victoria at the minute, and... Um, I just love eating them as well. They, they're so challenging and um, and the habitat they live in is just incredible. They're tough little buggers. I call them mini samba, except they don't wallow like a samba, but everything else is pretty much the same. But can't get enough of them. April, April isn't long enough for me. Um, they're just awesome little animals to hunt. Just challenging plus, yeah. Yeah, real a real switched on you know, game species. They've evolved with some pretty handy predators and that's um, made them a pretty evasive little critter. Absolutely, yeah. Now, we, we more or less, except, except for a lucky few, um, the hog deer season 2020 um, cast our minds back 12 months and the world was just starting to go crazy about this time 12 months ago. Um, we missed, pretty well everyone missed hog deer season in 2020. What impact do you think that lost year, that, that missed harvest is going to have on the ground with hog deer hunting this year? Yeah, very interesting. Hard to really put a finger on it, I think public land, uh, the population there would have helped us a little bit, except for the other issues which we'll, we'll speak about later on. Um, private land, that's an interesting one, or private land, um, little uh, game ranches, if you want to call them, or for what better words. They've got to manage their deer to numbers, I suppose, so it's up to them to how to handle that. But as far as public land, I think it's going to... Um, be a better year this year because of not being hunted last year. The um, the antler consideration of the, of the deer should be a little bit better because we've had a good season as in winter and spring. And we've had a good winter and spring last year with, with rainfall, which will help the habitat. And I think the deer this year will be a little bit heavier and better nick. So maybe, maybe it's a good thing. Time will tell when we get the reports back from this April. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, we've certainly seen, you know, anecdotally and, and out there observing, the deer all came out of winter looking really, really good. Um, and they've come out of summer looking really good. So, yeah, like you said, the data will tell the story, I suppose, when we get the data back, um, both in harvest numbers and in the condition of the deer. After this year, it'll, it'll tell a story about what impact last year had. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. I'm looking forward to getting that data back and... Um seeing what weight the animals are, et cetera, and um, antler growth. And, yeah, time will tell. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, an interesting scenario in Victoria this year um, with the duck season, um, which others go into, will go into um, the very, very shortened, almost non-duck season we're going to have in Victoria, but what it's meaning, the way it's been set up for the first time in a number of years, is that those state game reserves where we have hog deer hunting won't have any duck hunting on them during April, um, what impact do you think that will have on, on hunting opportunities on public land this year? 
it definitely won't help us avid traditional duck hunters, that's for sure. No. But as far as as far as uh, hoggies are concerned, I think it's um, really great for this April. Um, less human interference with uh, the duck hunters having their Labradors, etc., and all the hunting dogs running around the bushline and swamps and whatever should help us really. Um, so therefore, overall, it should be it should be good. Yeah, yeah, certainly. There's the the mixed feelings there, isn't there? As yeah, um, we'll we'll often run into each other and, and run into a lot of people we know this time of year out on the duck swamp, which we're all missing out on. But um, yeah. yeah, there'll be there will be benefits probably for hog deer hunters. You'd hope um, with with that really good year on top of it too. So you, you've got the deer in good nick, you've got good habitat, good water and and no pressure on those state game reserves. It, again, the data when we get it at the end of the year will tell the story as to whether it had much of an impact or um, whether there's other factors that involved, I suppose. Now, yeah, I, I'm, Barry, I'm, Barry, I think also it depends if um, hunters have been in there uh, culling foxes out too. Uh, which they're legal, legally allowed to do. Then it depends on whether it has an effect or not. But overall, I think it'll be uh, a benefit by having a later duck season, you know, because of the scent keeping away from the hog deer. Yeah. Yeah, and and look, you know, we're not. Um, we've got those state game reserves because of the work of of duck hunters. You know, sixty years ago, um, it, it's a bonus to have a hog deer hunting in the, in them, if you will. But um, we'll, we'll take that bonus this year for sure. Oh. Yeah, and, and all the uh, tree planting that's been going on down at Hartmarath, etc. Uh, Clyde Bank. Yeah, yeah. Oh. I mean, ADA was involved for the oh, yeah. best part of a decade planting out Clyde Bank. Certainly, um, the work that Sailfield and Game have done at Hartmarath, I've had a bit of abuse from Pud Howard over the last few years <laughs> about our hog deer um, eating all his trees, and I've thanked him <laughs> profusely for growing those lovely food crops for hog deer. <laughs> Typical. Uh, could, but anyway, <laughs> he likes to have his dig. Yeah, he, ten, he tends to be. He's a he's a good bloke. I won't I won't yeah. go bad mouthing him here. He's a grumpy old man though. Um, <laughs> yeah, most hog deer hunting, uh, most successful hog deer hunting happens on private land. Yeah. Um, you got any tips for people? I'm not, not going to ask you to give away your secret spots or anything like that. But any tips for a would be hog deer hunter who's trying to get access to private land? You now, what would they look for, and how would they go about it? The only tips I can really give there, Barry, is, is um, look, look, it's very difficult to get private property. I, I don't have a private property. I did have one, but uh, it was sold to another uh, farmer and um, he um, didn't like us. The new farmer didn't want us hunting hobby, so we were kicked off it. So I, I just have public land. But anyone who can get onto private property, good luck to them. Um, but I think getting on private is um, word of mouth and being in the know of uh, local people if you can get private property good luck to you but um i'm jealous if they can um uh, but that's that's life and you know i've only really in the latter or oh, what uh six seven years had um public land to hunt so it's been a lot harder but it's good i love the challenge and um put the hard yards in and you can get the rewards yeah yeah it's um like all hunting but very particularly with hog deer hunting it's it's um it's a form of hunting that really rewards the people who go and do the groundwork and, and do the recon and do their prep. Um, Absolutely, yeah, yeah big time. It, it's, uh, as I said, it's a huge challenge and um, 
which we'll get into a bit more what how we go about it. But yeah, good luck to those who can get the private. <laughs> now, of course, there's people who don't do the hard yards and don't do the prep and um, drive along and basically take those deer illegally out of season of a night time yeah. using thermals or spotlights. Yep. How, how much of an impact do you think poachers have on on hunting opportunities and on hog deer generally? Unfortunately, Barry, they have a huge effect. Um, it's, it's one of my biggest frustrations of any deer species is uh, that certain people that can't help themselves and they do the wrong thing and um, they can't accept the challenge, so they do it the easy way and um, realistically, they're just not helping us legit hunters basically, and their, and their egos just run away with them and they can't help themselves. So if they really, they can't accept the challenge, just walk away from it. Um, it's an issue. Like, the authorities are doing their best they can with what funds they've got to um, control things as much as possible, but I would like to see more management in those areas, if possible. Yeah, and it's always, it's a balance for the regulators. We'd, we'd always like more enforcement and, and obviously when people get caught, um, we'd like the courts to take it a bit more seriously and dish out some stiffer penalties to some of these jokers. Um, that'd be nice. Yeah, that'd be that'd be real nice. Like, um, you yeah, confiscate the, the vehicle even, you know, if that was a possible thing to do, that would curve a lot of people, I think. But um, it's, it's, a, it's a really sticky point issue of... How to handle it, Barry? Um, as I say, the, the authorities got to have the funds to put the men out there, and uh, it doesn't seem to go that way as much as I'd like. No. So you're an aspiring hog deer hunter. You've decided you're listening to this podcast and go, "Oh, yeah, that Laurie guy's really inspiring. He's he's changed my life. I want to go and become a hog deer hunter." Um, <laughs> how do we go about finding a good place to hunt and setting ourselves up for hog deer? Okay. Um, these days it's a lot, lot easier than when I first started, Barry, because you can jump on the GMA website and go to the mapping system and uh, start the ball rolling, um, which I think is great. It's, I love finding new country. It's another challenge in a different way. But um, you just get out there uh, off the maps and you do your homework. You, you to put the legwork in and narrow it down to an area. Um, Find, try and find a water source is, is probably the one of the main areas to start with and check for marks around that water course. And then what I do is I, I backtrack from that water source to um, find where the deer are feeding and bedding up. So you backtrack from the water, follow the marks, backtrack them to those areas, bedding areas, um, the, look for rubs along game trails and look for fresh scat along the way. And then once you've done your homework there, um, I look for decent-sized trees that you can park yourself in or your tree stand in. And what I tend to do is not necessarily sit on the waterhole. I sit back about sometimes 30, 50 metres along a game trail from the water sport, water point because I find that... Um, the hog deer are a little bit more relaxed walking along the game trails than actually at a waterhole. When they're at a waterhole, they're really alert because their head's down having a drink, but their ears and they're, you know, they're smelling all the time to be alert. Whereas walking along the game trail, they're, they're sniffing and just walking along, checking things out too. But 
they seem to be a bit more relaxed. That's that's what I've found in the past. And then um, then it's a waiting game. You get up that tree, and uh, if you've done your homework right and you're there at the right time, um, those little buggers will uh, come walking through. Um, and you say get up a tree, so th- that elevation is a really important thing with Hogdy. Absolutely, you get your scent up off the ground. Um, you walk in there every morning, and I must admit, I wear bogs, those gumboot bogs. Um, they tend to um, keep your scent in the boot off the ground, and you get up there as early as in the morning as you can, and um, and have a safe tree, have a safe seat up there and build a seat or a tree stand so as you um, you might nod off you'll fall out so you've got to have a safety aspect as well Barry and from there it's a waiting go oh is it ever um, yes uh, as you know I've spent oh, well I do spend from 10 to 11 hours a day on average up up the trees and um it's the real hard part, Barry. You've got to have a lot of um, patience, self-discipline, determination, and be prepared to sit all day. Uh, as I say, I do that average of 10 to 11 hours per day. And uh, the hobbies love to stretch their legs during the day so they can come wandering through at any time. You know, they're not just a deer that sticks to morning and evening feed. They, they like to get that bit of warmth on their bodies and they stretch and they'll do a walk at any time of the day. So that's why you've got to spend the hours up there um, and just check out your all your surroundings. You, you've got to really zone into your surroundings. Check every bush out. Make sure you know every almost every leaf within your area and listen to the birds. And if the birds start arcing up a little bit, you know something's on the move. It disturbs the birds. So listen to the birds. And don't get down at any stage because once you put your sensor on the ground, the game is over. Uh, once they smell your scent, you you turn them uh, nocturnal virtually straight away. And um, one thing I do take up the tree with me, Barry, so as you don't have to get down, is a little pee bottle. So as you <laughs> hang that up in the tree, and if you've got to go, you've got to use that bottle. Yeah, that's um. And you said you take a good book to read, or you, are you wholly focused um, on the deer? No, I don't, because turning the pages, you, you make a little bit of noise flicking those pages over. So the good old phone is handy if you got reception, and um, you know you can uh, check your phone out every now and then for weather patterns and send a, a message to a mate who might be you know, five hundred metres away from there up on his tree, and you can have a chat and whatever and. You know, just do it all digital, nice and quiet, no noise. Take that uh, volume level right down out of it, so there's no sound. What about insect protection? Um, you've, you've got a, a line to walk there with um, controlling scent, obviously, and yep. um, particularly a lot of that coastal hog deer country, um, sand flies and mosquitoes. So what do you use to protect yourself from them? And as you know, down that country, Barry, you can get carried away with the the swarms of mozzies that um, are down there. So I use um, mainly a tropical um, spray that has that little bit of eucalyptus smell through it. And um, I find that if you've got yourself up that tree, the, the scent carries through the tops of the trees and hopefully won't travel down to the ground as well anyway. So with a bit of luck, 
you've got to have a lot of luck with it with the breeze or thermal or whatever that's happening on the day. But hopefully you get those nice sunny days where there's not not a lot of breeze or thermals happening, and then the tent just sort of wafts and burns off in that sunlight. I found I found that your tent on the ground that you might leave walking into your tree early in the morning burns off after about three, two to three to four hours, depending on uh, what shade is there too. It burns off with that nice bright sunlight. So that um, helps you. But as far as insect spray, yeah, I use a tropical type one with a bit of eucalyptus uh, added into it and and uh, try and smell a bit more like a tree than, than a human. And typically, how long would your shots be when you when you get into that position and you can take a crack at a, at a deer? What sort of distance are you looking at? Very close, Barry. Um, being coastal, thick tea tree, etc. scrub, um, the closest shot I've taken on a nice 13 inch was 15 feet. Um, he walks right right underneath the tree, basically. And um, the furthest shot would probably be about 50 metres. And um, nothing further than that at all. So it's all, it's all close shooting, definitely. Yeah, close, quite smaller. You use a smaller calibre, or I mean, you can use what from. No, I just use my, my 30, 3006 on it with um, the 150 grain and um, place it right, and you won't have an issue. And, and believe it or not, that, that shot, that one that I shot from 15 metres away, he was directly underneath a tree. I just pointed the rifle down right between his, and because the scope was just full of hair, it was that close. So I checked the scope out and I put it right between his antlers and ran it down his ran the scope down his foot past his antlers to right between the shoulders and hit him hard, pushed him straight into the dirt, and that shot did not exit his chest. Like it pushed it straight down between the shoulders and him to the ground and that shot did not even exit. I was surprised. I thought it would have blown a big hole underneath him, but no, it just um, pushed him to the ground and, and stayed inside the skin. So it's, it's important to use a, a well-constructed board and, and put it in the right spot, know your anatomy. Um, yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, if, if they do run, they're not a very big animal. It's thick country. They can be very difficult to find. Very, very difficult, yeah. I, I know a couple of them I've shot that have taken me um, a good hour to find them. Uh, and they've only run no more than uh, 30, 40 metres. Yeah. Um, which is very unusual because most of the time they've dropped pretty much on the spot. Um, they just they just had that adrenaline blood rush and they ran, um, and uh, as you know, that that scrub is so thick that they disappear straight in underneath it, and you've got to get on your hands and knees and find them out. All right. Well, um, I think that sort of brings us to the end of what I had listed to discuss. Is there anything you think I've missed, or anything you'd like to add about? No, not really, Barry. I think we've covered um, right across the board. Just that I think. Uh, anyone think about getting into hog deer hunting and um, just enjoy the challenge, hunt the deer on its merits, put the hard yards in and, and then um, hope you get the rewards because um, it does take, well, it took me a long, long time to get right in amongst them and, and um, learn how to be patient and dedicate yourself to sit up the tree all day, every day for as long as you're down there in the bush. And that, that takes a lot because you get fidgety up in the tree and you want to move, but you just it's just deadly. You can't do it. You've just got to stay there. And and look, the rewards are um, potentially a really good trophy, but certainly 
some of the nicest venison you'll ever wrap your lips around. Love them. Can't get enough of it. It's the, it's the best meat out of, well, I think, out of our six species we've got here, basically. Yeah. But that's personal choice. <laughs> yeah, it, it all is. Now, if you want to hunt hog deer, of course, in Victoria, you have to have tags so you can get them through the Game Management Authority's MyGL system. I'll put a link up in the podcast to that. But um, by the time you hear this, if you haven't got tags, you won't be hunting the start of April because it takes a week or so to come. Um, but look, about a week's time, you'll be heading east and getting yourself up a tree. So good luck, Laurie. Sure will. Thanks, Barry. You checked the cameras out last week and there's a few hanging around and um, they look in good nick too, actually, I must admit, after what we spoke about after last year's uh, feed, etc., range, etc. So uh, thanks, Baz. Looking forward to it. Can't wait for the first. I'll be down there, all organised, ready to go at daybreak. Fantastic. Thanks for joining us. Got you, mate. Thank you. Our last guest for this podcast is Jake Nicholson. He'll be rounding out the April special series that we're doing, talking about fallow deer. Jake's the president of the ADA's South East South Australian branch and he hunts extensively all over the place. We can find fallow in most places in Australia, Jake. What makes them special? Um, yeah, g'day Barry and g'day listeners. Um, I think that's, that's a good question. Um, fallow are probably you know, one of the most prominent species in Australia. They're, you know, you can find them in nearly every state. Um, being so vocal, I think when they are rutting is probably a, a part of it too. Um, makes them exciting to hunt, you know, much like red deer. But, um, you know, they're probably the only, they are the only deer species that have got palmated antlers too. So it's, there's something a little bit different they're so unique too in their antler growth you know there's no two bucks that are the same so i think they are all sort of part and parcel of why they're pretty special they're probably a gateway species for a lot of um new hunters to get into hunting as well most people that you know when they start it's it's a fellow idea that they take as their first just because they are everywhere so yeah for me and probably a lot of other hunters that's why they're pretty special i guess yeah yeah there's um it's certainly a lot for a lot of hunters in Australia, that's the deer they can get access to. But, mm. um, yeah, all these cool, very unique amongst the deer species, some of the, the mating behaviours, the lecking that fallow deer do. Um, pretty good yeah. ven- pretty good venison too. Oh, yeah, certainly good on the chew. That's right. Yeah. Um, so the fallow rut, um, I'll just play a little bit of audio of it and then maybe you can explain sort of when is it, what is it and, and why they're doing it. that's that's me just doing my mouth calling imitating no i wish um so so what are we listening to there the old fellow grunt uh people have got their own names for it and whatever but yeah sort of a cross between a pig or a chainsaw you sort of hear different uh nicknames for it but you know when you're out in the bush um and you hear that usually makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck um you know obviously you hear them grunting like that um they'll only do that when they're rutting um they'll be chasing around fellow does in the bush um sort of grunts and snorts they'll you know usually the 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 the, um the fallow rut is 
uh, mid-April. Depending on the amount of deer that are in the area, it can last for a matter of a few days to months, you know, in where there's big numbers, uh, they can start running and running as early as mid-March and go right through to, you know, after April. But predominantly it's that sort of first week or two or three of April. Um, you know, the fallow bucks, they are reasonably territorial. They'll a lot of the time rut in the same place each year. Uh, they'll be marking their territories by scraping um, holes in the ground with their feet pouring and rubbing their scent glands and pissing and that sort of stuff in, in these spots. And as well as, you know, rubbing their antlers and, um, you know, preaching on trees and that sort of thing, they'll, uh, you know, sort of defend that territory with other bucks as well. If there's other bucks that will, you know, approach them, they'll, they'll stand off, they'll parallel walk, that sort of thing. And, you know, fight. They're a real aggressive species. Um, a lot of the time you'll find them with broken antlers, um, definitely points and that sort of thing come off. But we've got trail cam stuff from the southeast of, you know, full brow tines jammed in hind legs and holes in ribs. And you find dead ones out there in the bush that haven't been shot, that have just died fighting. Um, See, so that's sort of a little bit about it. Um, they'll, when the does start to cycle, they'll um, sort of herd the does into a spot where they'll try and cover them. And, you know, they'll try and maintain them in their control. And you'll see spikes that'll, you know, young spikies or forkhorns that'll fight, flow through. They'll, they'll chase them off and then round the girls back up and sort of try and keep them in their own area. Um, it's exhilarating to be around and because they're so distracted, it's a great time to hunt them. You can obviously hear them grunting, uh, which gives you, you know, their location. And because it's fixed, it, most of the time sort of helps. And then you can move when they're making noise or they're distracted. So uh, that helps you get in close a lot of the time. And then, you know, that's, that can be sort of the easy part. The next thing is trying to make a shot when you've got an animal that's, you know, behaving like that. It can be pretty challenging. You can be there for, you know, sometimes half hour and an hour before you can actually get a shot present before you can take an animal sometimes. So, yeah, it's good fun. Yeah, I've heard um, it's like some really accomplished hunters. Peter Burke, who would be a bit of a household name in Australian deer hunting, um, tells me that hunting fallow deer in the rut in South Australia is the, his number one deer hunting experience. And, yeah, it's a bloke who's, yeah. who's done it all and... and lives his life with Samber and does all this great stuff, but he, he reckons fellow in the rut and that mallee is just something else. It certainly is. And I think in, in some areas where there's, um, you know, reasonable populations, um, you can, you can spend all day in tight mallee. Um, you know, you can make a stalking on a buck and have a good look at him and see what he's like. And, you know, if he's he's not your style, or he's not uh, he's not old enough, or something like that, where well, you can you can back out from that hunt and you know try and approach another buck that's grunting not that far away. And some days they can grunt all day on and off. So you know, it's not like you get a crack morning, early morning or late in the evening. You can you can hunt it all day, and it's it's a rare opportunity. I know you know you've got to be in spots with high populations. To, but to get that, ex, you know, that exposure, it's, it's unreal. Um, you know, obviously 
there's a fair bit of natural selection that's going on too at that time, you know, because these bucks are fighting um, for the days that they want to cover that are on season. You get bucks that have got bigger antlers, bigger frames or bigger bodies um, that end up, you know, covering the females. So your younger stock doesn't get the opportunity to breed or poor quality stock that, you know, might have a broken antler or one antler or, you know, a small frame doesn't get the opportunity to rut. So it's, yeah, natural, natural selection at its best, basically. Yeah, um, and so you've gone into a bit of how to hunt them in the rut, but you can hunt fallow for a fair chunk of the year. Um, what are your hunting yeah. strategies for fallow sort of both in the rut and out of it? Certainly. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, if you don't mind, I'll talk about the southeast. It's probably a yeah. little bit different depending on your area. Um, but for us down here, it's a mixture of, um, you know, sort of uh, farmland hunting mixed with scrub. Um, so... Early on in that, well, for us, we've got a season. We um, we don't hunt over the Christmas period. So we've got um, hunting from February through to October. So when we when we come back in, in February, you've got fallow bucks that are, um, you know, either just hard in antler or basically in hard velvet, um, usually not too far off. So they're usually out feeding more than what they would be you know during the rut um they're building up their body size and condition earlier on for their antler growth but you know preparing themselves for the um the rutting period so you might catch them out and about a little bit more often they're obviously still a reasonably nocturnal but you know you get opportunities of uh the deer coming from the paddocks back into the scrub and same with the does you know they're looking after themselves and looking after um, you know, usually a fawn at foot or something like that. So, yeah, definitely you get opportunities on scrub lines and that sort of thing. Always you can hunt them in the scrub. It's usually just a little bit harder. Um, they might not be as active that early on in the season as well uh, in the scrub, but certainly good opportunities there. When it's early season like that, we try and take the, the fawns first just to make sure that you're not orphaning young animals you know ideally we want to make sure that you're looking after the animals as best as you can as hunters um so that's something we account for as the rut approaches the bucks tend to spend a lot more time in the bush rarely you'll catch them out in the open they're starting to work their scrapes they're rubbing their antlers if they're getting velvet off and that sort of thing early on and you know they're finding their pecking order they're fighting you might hear the odd grunt and that sort of thing early on so Ideally, a lot of people like to try and harvest fallow bucks in that sort of March period um, because they're not as broken up or damaged. It's it's pretty hard going, and a lot of people sort of struggle getting onto them in that period. Um, the does, too, you know, they're starting to ditch their younguns usually, so they're they're usually out feeding and that sort of stuff. But in the bush, you'll you'll find them grazing. Um, they tend to give the bucks a little bit of space, but. Yeah, and during, during the rut period, obviously, we touched on that a little bit. Um, the focus usually goes off the females. But I, I, don't, I don't know, you've seen in recent media that we, we probably need to, you know, not just get buck fever and go hunting for, for antlers. We need to, you know, maintain that female pressure all year round. So sort of promote, we promote, you know, 
if you go out for a morning hunt or an afternoon hunt and yet you're unsuccessful to try and shoot a doe or shoot a young male or something like that. But yeah, your, your males, once once the rut starts, there's um, lots of noise in the bush. You'll get them grunting early mornings and in, in the evenings. Um, obviously, it's a great way to help locate them. You know, once you, once you get close to an animal within a, a few hundred metres, you know, you can usually use their noise as a bit of an opportunity to gain ground on the animal. So in the Mallee down here, it's, it's reasonably noisy. If we haven't had rain, it's like walking on cornflakes. So, you know, um, move when they make noise. Um, keep your eyes peeled for satellite bucks and spikies and that sort of stuff. Make sure they don't give you away. A lot of the time you can bump them though and, you know, you won't you won't distract the, the buck enough that he's going to bolt on you because he's got his mind set on um, the things between his legs and the girls he's chasing. Um, but, yeah, you know, just use that as a, a, a bit of an advantage and then it just gets back to patience. Like any style of deer hunting, I think, you've just got to take your time once you get in close keep your wind right and you know take the time to assess the animal and your surroundings and hopefully take a shot um and then post rut i guess is yeah it, it changes dramatically um usually by may definitely um going into june the bucks instead of being you know sort of solo in the bush they'll actually mob up again um they want to kill each other in April, but after that, <laughs> once all the shagging's done, well, yeah, you know, we're all mates again for another they go back to months. Mates down yeah. the pub. <laughs> so, you know, they the, the bucks will mob up again. They'll be poor in condition. You know, they they don't really feed too much during April. A lot of the time, when you harvest a buck in April, you know, if you actually take the time to dissect his offal, you'll find that their guts is usually empty. You know, they don't, they really work themselves to the bone trying to achieve, you know, a decent mate or, you know, cover, protecting their does if they are a strong animal. So, the, yeah, the, they're the game of life, isn't it? Like, it, it's all about passing yeah. those genetics on. And Yeah, exactly right. And a lot of the time after the rut, you'll find them, um, you know, bedded out in the open or in the paddocks, just absolutely worn out. Um, we've had, branch members down here you know get videos of nearly walking up to a buck and touching it on its back just you know they're that worn out um that they can't be bothered you know getting up and running away that's how hard they push themselves so uh yeah you know it's a good opportunity to to chase males after the rut as well a lot of the time if you're a trophy hunter you're dealing with breaks with antlers because they fight so hard but um Certainly, if it's a numbers game and you need to you need to harvest them, it's a good opportunity too. Um, the females, you know, they're usually doing the same sort of thing. They're out and about. They still travel together. You you've usually got younger, the younger fawns and that sort of thing. Yeah, turning into yearlings are, are broken up from their mums. They're sometimes not as educated as what some of the does are, and even young spikes, you can pick them up all over the place and sometimes any time during the day as well so it's usually a lot of fun after the rut to chase animals and the bucks 
they get quite dirty and smelly and the meat's sort of tainted during that running period. But by the time you get to sort of June, July, um, and they start to put condition on, it's some of the best venison you'll get, for sure. You talk about uh, managing deer for numbers, um, which is a heavy focus. I mean, not just in the in South Australia, but in, in a lot of places in Australia nowadays, when we talk about deer, um, there's there's a, a lot of emphasis on taking numbers. Yeah. Um, yep. how's, how are they managed in South Australia, both for quality and for quantity? Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely something that's in the focus. And it's a little bit of a tricky one because I guess it depends where exactly you know the um the mentality between governments and landowners and you know others is obviously um quite different some see them with a monetary value some actually like having about and then you know there's the extermination sort of line that other people have so yeah for us we've been working we hunt um a lot of private land and it, for the branch does hunt a lot of private land and has hunted um, parks uh, in the past and hopefully back in there soon again. But, you know, we've, we basically have to find a happy medium for our farmer. They have a certain tolerance for deer, um, but we need to provide that balance for them that, you know, obviously lines up with the, the money that you're paying them for access um, and to hunt, but then obviously works in with their farming practice too especially when you look at, you know, at, at the moment, the price of cattle and sheep, you know, when you can get a few hundred dollars for a lamb or $5 a kilo for beef, obviously they don't want a farm that's overrun with fallow. You so, don't want much competition for that grass, do you? No, exactly right. So, you know, sometimes a farmer's tolerance will be a lot less, so we'll change our management strategy to suit the landowner's needs. So... In a lot of areas, we enforce our hunters to take a certain number of females per year. Um, that obviously helps maintain that focus on the breeding stock. Usually we, we have a 70% female to male ratio, and that's to try and you know, keep the breeding numbers down. Annually, we usually harvest around 1,000 deer a year between 150 hunters, and you know that can fluctuate depending on the situation but a lot of it and most of it is done by ground hunting which is excellent but we do have to use um, other methods you know we do um, organised ground culls where it's very similar to like a fox drive where we'll push deer out of the scrub and shoot them or we'll ambush them by having large numbers of hunters on fence lines at sunup and waiting for deer to come back and we might shoot 50 or 100 in the morning um, in some situations but you know, the spotlight's definitely a useful tool. Um, you know, the old saying, like, if you're in the headlights, they are easier to shoot at night. And, you know, it's it's a tool that we use. And something we always like to emphasise is the utilisation of um, the animals down here in the southeast. You know, I said we, we harvest a 1,000 deer a year on average. All of those animals are utilised. Sometimes it might not be the full animal. You know, it might only be the back legs and the back straps and, loins and that sort of thing but you know for us we like to promote the usage of the meat and even if it's for dog tucker or you're giving it away to your mates it's not doesn't have to be for personal use it's it's great to see it used um the parks do a little bit of helicopter um control work down here as well that's 
not something that we oppose. Um, the method and, you know, maybe the utilisation of meat, you know, that it, they're left, left to rot in the paddocks. It's not something we really agree with. But given the numbers in the area, I think it's something that, um, you know, may have to continue. I would like to see more a mixture of it mixed with ground hunting and, you know, other methods to make sure numbers are in control. But it's a, it's a very expensive program. And you look at the dollars per head value of it on what they shoot, and it's it's extraordinary, whereas we're paying for access and shooting, you know, sometimes similar numbers. So, yeah, hopefully in the future, um, when it comes to government land in South Australia, the ground hunters you know, can hopefully have a little bit more access and help contribute. I think there's definitely a big opportunity there for, you know, whether it's ADA or other shooting associations to get in or maintain programs they've got and hopefully start harvesting decent numbers and certainly be part of the future. And, you know, we don't want to be seen as part of the problem. It's definitely the total opposite. Hunters, you know, we want to conserve um, the wildlife and obviously have utilisation of the resources that are there to us. Yeah, and like you said, that um, I mean, the branch is taking a thousand deer a year. That's a, a substantial number of animals. Um, and yep. South East Branch runs these hunting programs on private property. You, you obviously managed to get the balance quite well between the quantity and the quality. I, I saw a picture on Facebook today of you and... Your young son was it guiding? Yeah, yeah. Guiding yep. a hunter onto his first trophy that was an absolute cracker. And, <laughs> yeah. But there's consistent. It doesn't always work out like that. But, but consistently, good some good quality fellow deer coming out of there. Certainly, yeah. Uh, over yeah. the last twenty years that I that I know of, and probably longer. How, how no, is it? Yeah, we definitely promote, um, you know, the select selective. Um, targeting of males so we really emphasize on poor antler development and you know lacking of important features of the fallow deer you know um some of the tines and palm shape and whatever and we we encourage members to take as many poor quality males as they can and you know deer have been in in that scene for you know over 100 years and with continual management you know, in the early days, if you could shoot a, a 180 Douglas score fallow buck, you know, you're over the moon. And basically that benchmark these days has been pushed up to around 230 um, Douglas score, which is definitely good. It takes a lot of work, um, you know, and it, it takes some hunters, you know, using a little bit of patience, you might have to walk past a, a fallow buck that's, you know, a nice two, 200 model or a 210 model that's only four years old or five years old that just needs a little bit of time but patience paid pays off and if you want to shoot big trophies it's sort of the attitude you have to have so how does the southeast branch in particular because it's, it's a bit of a model well, not only within ada but sort of throughout australia in my view on on how a, a cooperative can manage deer there's a, there's other cooperatives in tasmania that do similar things to what the yeah. southeast branch do yeah. but how do you motivate 150 hunters to take a thousand deer a year um, yeah, the program, basically, our motto is deer hunting by dedication. So to become part of our program, you've 
you have to basically do a year's service to the branch, which means attending some of our events. Uh, we do fencing work for farmers, obviously these spotlight control nights. We do fundraisers. We work, we've worked at Lucendale Field Days. Um, we vine prune for years as a financial um, you know, fundraiser for the, for the branch. So you have to do these uh, events and you earn an attendance point for each event. And the more attendance points you earn, the more hunting privileges you get the next year. So most people, you know, if they're willing to put in a year's worth of service, they're usually pretty keen to take animals and go hunting and be pretty serious about it. Obviously, there's a big carrot um, waving in front of people's noses. We've got um, just shy of 52,000 um, acres of access, private land. That doesn't include a month's access that we... Um, we buy at another prop, private property, um, usually for the rut period. That's that's another um, twenty two thousand acres. So, if you include that, you're hunting just shy of seventy five thousand acres, um, and it can be from February right through to um, October. So, yeah, you know that's a big carrot. It makes it makes people get in and do the right thing, um, and we obviously set the parameters to promote people taking females so before you can trophy hunt you have to take we said each year depending on deer numbers will take you know you have to take two or three females or doe on a fawn or you know a doe fawn on a spiky or something like that before you can trophy hunt so it promotes people to take those numbers and it it works really well um and the members respond really well if we have fluctuations in numbers we can ask them to get out and hunt hard and take as much as you can handle and we'll have hunters that'll take you know a dozen deer in a weekend and go home and make sausages for their whole family which is excellent it's great to see it utilized it's it's definitely a big big machine to manage um we've got a purpose-built website that we've well we continue to 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 change and maintain that's been operating since I think about 2012 you know it's cost us tens of thousands of dollars to set up and maintain but we've basically got an online booking system um, that controls the amount of hunters that we can have at each property it's fully monitored and can be uh, reported on by us to the landowners or the landowners have got access to keep an eye on things that are going every time you hunt we have a sighting report that's got to be done daily that you know shows uh, what what sort of numbers you've seen and then a harvest report that follows on so what animals you've taken so we can really look at that from the backside and see what hunters have you know sighted and what have harvested and we can increase pressure where needed um, or you know tailor it to suit that property works really well that's it's certainly like i said a model um Mm. We'll probably wind it up there, I think, Jake, unless you think there's something glaring I've missed. We've, we've had a kind invitation for myself and a few of the board members to come over this year, so yeah. when, we, when we do that, we might bring the podcast equipment and um, have a few yeah. cold vessels of happiness and round up some of your dulcet-toned older members there and, and talk about <laughs> oh, some of the, the really interesting conservation work that's going on there and and some, yeah. of, some of the deep history of, of the both the branch and deer hunting in the southeast. So we'll, we'll try and do a, a dedicated episode on that. Yeah, definitely some stories to tell. And as you said, with the conservation stuff, the the Mallee fowl stuff that's starting to happen, you know, hunters, you know, doing the right thing and 
working with the government on conservation and that sort of stuff. Obviously, being in the Mallee, we've got these endangered species, protected species that, you know, we want to look after. I think it, it shocks a, a few of the greenies, us killers, you know, want to look after things in the bush, but we love it just as much or more as them, uh, you know, half the time. So, no, definitely a few stories to tell. We'd be keen for that, Barry. Uh, fantastic. And thanks for your time. And um, enjoy Christmas for deer hunters that's coming up in, in a couple of weeks' time for you. Can't wait, mate. Yeah, sadly, I've got a couple of weeks off. Just have to make the most of it. Very good. Thanks a lot, Jake. Thanks, Barry. Cheers. The Australian Deer Podcast is brought to you by the Australian Deer Association, proudly in partnership with Stony Creek. We are the deer people.